Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Danielle Burkowski. And I'm Amanda Wells. And we're both editors for the Northwestern University Law Review Online. In this episode, we are thrilled to bring you a new way to think about racial discrimination. Today we have with us Professor Issa Kohler-Hausman discussing her forthcoming article, Eddie Murphy and the Dangers of Counterfactual Causal Thinking About Detecting Racial Discrimination. Professor Kohler-Hausman is an associate professor at Yale Law School and an associate professor of sociology at Yale. She researches criminal law and criminal procedure through an empirical lens. She is also a proud alumna of Northwestern University, where she received her master's in sociology. We hope you enjoy the episode. Professor Kohler-Hausman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Call me Isa, please. Okay, Isa. So your career path has taken you from sociology to law back to sociology. Can you tell us about how these disciplines overlap and how you found yourself interested in racial discrimination in the law? Yes, thank you again so much for having me. Um, I actually also did my first year of law school here at Northwestern. So um, I had, yeah, I had coffee with my first year con law professor, Andrew Koppelman, which was lovely this morning. Um, I started sociology, um, I guess I was an undergrad and just with a general interest in, you know, the social world. Um, I was actually, one of my majors was mathematical economics, and it felt that there was something missing in understanding the world um, just with these uh, mathematical representations and that the background world of norms and meanings seem to be very important for understanding how uh, the regularities that we observe in the world. Um, so I wasn't a sociology major, but I had my was doing my first year of law school here, and I realized, you know what, I really love academia. I want to be able to think about these things, so uh, don't tell my con- uh, contracts law professor. But while I was in contracts law, I was putting together my application to start my uh, for a PhD here. Um, and so I applied to one program, and they were very kind, and they let me in. Um, so I started the PhD here at Northwestern. Um, but then I realized I did actually really want to be able to sue people. So I needed a law degree for that. So after a couple of years of the coursework, I decided to go back to law school, and um, I transferred. And then uh, my advisor tr- um, moved from Northwestern to NYU. So when I finished law school, I went back to NYU to finish up. And I think that the most important aspect about sociology to bear on racial discrimination came in thinking about how we even define what the groups are that uh, that we say that the law is regulating, right? So we say something like, um, it's illegal to discriminate because of race. Well, the law doesn't really, isn't a discipline that offers you a theory on what that word means and what race is, or the law says that um, it's illegal to discriminate because of sex. Well, the law doesn't tell you what sex is. It doesn't, nor does it tell you, for example, is anti-gay discrimination a form of sex discrimination? And I became really interested in that, um, and partially through this sort of, I thought the the confused way that doctrine often talked about that, but also partially because I was studying quantitative sociology and I thought that there were similar limitations in how we were approaching these questions with quantitative methods. And before we get into the model of detecting discrimination, why is it important that we change our thinking about discrimination to begin with? What are the negative consequences of the way we currently think about discrimination generally? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if they're negative, depends on your theory of what you think is fair and just, which is kind of, you know, one 
big part of uh, this this paper of saying that there's no sort of morally neutral way to even define the term. Um, but I, one other reason that I became obsessed with this topic, and I really have been working on this paper in one form or another for, oh, it's embarrassing to admit it, for 15 years. So starting actually my first year of law school here um, in 2003, is that possible? Yes, 2003. And I don't even know what year it is. Maybe that's more than 15 years. Is it 2018 or is it 19 now? Anyways, it's been a lot of years um, that I found how we were thinking about this in the equal protection cases just sort of nonsensical. It felt very circular, um, and it just didn't seem to gel with what we understand the best ways of theorizing what this concept even means of race or sex. Um, and then secondly, um, I worked as an expert on one case, on one of these phony stash house cases that I think we'll get to later in New York, and a very simple question. They just wanted to know how many people had violent felony convictions in New York City uh, that are white, black, Hispanic, and um, classified as other race or ethnicity. Turns out that's a very easy question to ask, very hard question to answer. Um, and so I worked on that case, and all of these these phony stash house cases I thought were deeply, deeply problematic. And yet all the challenges, including the ones that I worked at, for the most part, lose. They just lose. They, sometimes they can't even get discovery on the question of racial discrimination. And on this one, we lost. And I'm a stubborn, angry, very not particularly well-adjusted person. And I just was livid and couldn't get past it. And there's nothing I can do because I wasn't the lawyer and, you know, federal judges just have lots of power and there's nothing you can do. Um, so I wanted to write a really long article about why what the judge was saying was so stupid and wrong and deeply, deeply nonsensical. Um, so I think one of the negative consequences is, A, that we just keep thinking about the concept wrong. And secondly, I think we're arguing often in circles and past each other. And so part of what I'm hoping that this approach will do would be to clarify the nature of the disagreement. So at least we can have them in a more coherent fashion, because often it seems to me that people are just sort of arguing in incoherent terms about it. Which leads to our next question, where you're arguing that the model of detecting discrimination in law and social science, the counterfactual causal model, is wrong. Could you talk to us about what that is, and also in relation to what you said previously, sort of whether this is about redefining discrimination or race or both? That's a great question. Um, and for a long time, um, well, you know what? Let me back up and let me answer. Give you try to give you the elevator pitch of the of the article. So most ways that people, at least in the social sciences, think of detecting discrimination, um, and this is the result of this rigorous thing called the counterfactual causal revolution that happened in the social science maybe about 30 years ago, was trying to give precision to causal questions, right? Do we want to know, uh, does um, increasing income um, at the family level lead to better educational outcomes? So we really want to know, does changing the income change um, education. We want to make sure that that's not confounded with other things like, um, or is it just having, living in a better neighborhood? So we want to sort of, you know, separate neighborhood effects maybe from income effects alone, right? Um, so almost all questions in social science are framed in terms of causal questions. And that's often taken from the medical model, right? We want to know if aspirin really uh, changed the, the person's perception of pain. We want to know if this cancer drug really is the causal mechanism in addressing um, this disease. And it's essential that we think in causal terms because otherwise we don't know if you should give the person that drug or if you should do something else. But it turns out that I think a lot of ways that we use, that causality is being talked about, especially with discrimination, I think is deeply conceptually confused. And it's the wrong way of thinking about discrimination. So the most common way that people define discrimination is pulling on this model saying, 
is race or sex or sexual orientation the cause of an outcome, right? Did it sort of propulse the outcome forward? Um, and that, that, that you can think about it much the same way that you would think about whether or not taking a pill caused um, a physical outcome to change, right? So this but-for causality that we talk for in the law. So you've got one world in which the person has this um, has the disease and they don't take the pill and in time two they still have the disease and you have another parallel world we have the exact same person and they do take the pill and in time two you see that they don't have the disease anymore and in that case you can say that the pill was actually the cause of the disease going away and people think that we can talk about race in the same way right so that you can say you know did the person's race cause the traffic stop to turn into an arrest so in one world the person is a as a black male and another world the person is a white male and um, I basically argue that there that the way of analogizing race to a pill is deeply confused um, and that when we have that thought experiment we're actually thinking about changing a, a very thick set of meanings about the person and only if you think race consists in a biological trait, right? So literally just being skin color, could you think of just sort of swapping things out on bodies? If you have what I think of as the right conception of race, when you engage in that thought experiment, you're swapping out a whole constellation of social meanings and facts. Um, and there's two different ways to think about it. I mean, one way is to say, if right now we wanted to know how... Um, a black male Issa Kohler Hausman's career would have gone or would have been treated when, you know, he walked into Northwestern Law School today. Um, you can't imagine that suddenly I just would be the exact same person except for just skin color and sex, right? My whole life would have been different. I would have been treated differently. I probably would have had different opportunities. I would have been encouraged and, and discouraged in different ways. Um, I might be interested in different things. So there's a whole set of entangled things that would have been different. Um, and that's true in terms of asking if it's me, but it's the similarly true when you think about perception, which is when you perceive someone to have certain racial cues, you think of a whole set of things as being fundamentally different about that person. And not only that, the question of what's fair and just given that status is fundamentally structured by what the status is. Um, so the point is that if we think through what it means to think of race as a treatment, just and you're trying to make it something that's like a pill, you end up thinking of race as being like a weird biological trait and not actually these really thick social categories that entail a whole bunch of things. And part of what the problem is, is trying to figure out what that whole bunch of things are, that that's actually part of the work that you have to do to figure out whether or not something is discrimination. And you make the other comparison between race and freckles in your article as well. Can we dig a bit deeper and see how that leads you to this idea of um, what race is and uh, how do we look at that from the aspect of history? And like you said, what factors are we looking for to Great. mix yeah. those together? I mean, if you think about something like... Um, freckles or bunions, right? Just things that are just aspects of physicality. If someone is a, um, if there's an alien from Mars that comes down and you want to tell this person, I want you to go find all the freckled people or all the people with bunions, you could kind of give the, that alien a drawing, right? You could say epidermis, 
dots and you might have a threshold like here's the number of dots upon which we'll say the person is freckles or here's a protrusion on their foot after which you'll call it a bunion um but race is a is like i said it's this thick social category um and you couldn't just give someone a map you actually would have to learn a lot that martian from outer space would have to sort of sit in our culture for a long time to understand what race is. And we can see the truth of that um, in, for example, the history of passing trials in the United States, right? I mean, trials where someone was, you know, being accused of lying about their racial status, right? I mean, Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy was an incredibly light-skinned black man such that the conductor, in order to you know, force him into the separate and unequal cars, had to ask him if he's black, right? So race doesn't just consist in skin color. And we can also see it in the fact that a lot of audit um, or what are called correspondence studies send out resumes that have similar credentials. And the way that they signal race is just with a name, right? So they may say something like um, Jamar Brown versus Blake White, right? I mean, everyone knows that Blake White is supposed to signal whiteness. And there's nothing about whiteness, nothing about skin color. It's just that you have to know something about the social category to know that Blake or Blake and that um, funny Key and Peel skit um, is is a white name, right? Um, and so what that means is that the thing is signaling membership in this category. It's not actually signaling just having the trait, right? Freckles or bunions is literally just having the thing, whereas race is being a member of a category. And if that's true, in order to detect discrimination, you have to first have this theory of what the thing is. Um, and that's really hard. That's actually like, you know, like G.I. Joe said, kind of half the battle and is itself kind of a big debate. So you touched upon why this counterfactual causal model of discrimination is wrong. Can you discuss the implication of using that um, with social science in cases? Yeah. And that's really what I hope with this article. I really hope to start a dialogue with um, the people. And there really is a fairly small group of people that sort of provide experting services in um, police discrimination cases, prosecutorial discrimination cases, selective prosecutions, um, employment discrimination cases. And as I mentioned in the start, a lot of the way that they do that is basically say, think that there's there could be some neutral way to try to get at race after stripping away all of its confounders, right? So we're going to control for income, we're going to control for neighborhood, we're going to control for parents' occupation, we're gonna, you know, and I'm just throwing out random things. And the part of the question that I want to ask is, well, what do you think you're getting to once you strip away all those things? I mean, unless you literally think race is just a genetic fact, and what you're getting to is people that share certain biology or genes, and I think most people don't want to say that they have that view of what the category is, something has to be guiding you as to what you're including and not including, what you're trying to strip away. And I think that is what the question, the normative question of discrimination is which is, I think, the proper way of thinking about discrimination is you start with a theory of what's the category. You start with the ways in which groups are systematically different or constructed as different. And then you have the, the moral debate, and it's not an easy one either. So, you know, the bad news is, you know, spoiler alert, I don't solve this in the article. I just basically say this is, these are two components that you would need, I think, for a coherent conceptualization of discrimination. So you start with a model of, what is the groupedness about which we're saying someone could be discriminated against? And then you say, given that that's what it is, this is what fairness or justice would be. And let me just give you a really intuitive one that I've been using in this in my um, seminar that I'm teaching this semester, which is, you know, pregnancy 
tallness, disability status, right? These are all things in which the groupedness consists in having some systematic difference, right? So in pregnancy, your body has different capacities because you're in this temporary physical state. You know, you might have lifting restrictions. Um, Different forms of disability means you're differently situated with respect to certain physical capacities. Um, Even tallness, right? So you might want to say, in order to say that something is, for example, discriminating against short people, you can't just answer, well, you know, this this policy requires everyone to reach the same height. Well, that doesn't answer the question. If what tallness is, is having more height, then you need to say, I think it's fair to have everyone reach the same amount or with disability or pregnancy. You need to say, given that these are the ways that these that what defines the groupedness systematically differs in this way, this is what I'm saying is fair. But you can't start by presuming that those systematic things aren't there. You have to start by sort of noting them, documenting them, having a theory of what makes that the group, and then you argue about that. And so in in the quantitative exercises trying to detect discrimination, my point is the entire normative account of what is or is not discriminatory is actually played out in what you control for, what you don't control for. And that should be on the table. It's it's, But it's not a methodological problem. It's actually the entire doctrinal exercise is trying to figure out, given that these things differ systematically. Um, and I think that you see this a lot, for example, in policing cases, which is one thing you constantly see is saying, oh, well, we're going to control for crime rates. Well, unfortunately, because of the history of, you know, slavery, Jim Crow, purposeful residential segregation, state neglect of black neighborhoods, there's huge variations in crime rates between white and black neighborhoods. In fact, in the city that I grew up in, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it's one of the most hyper-segregated cities in the country. So if you wanted to say you can only prove discrimination with respect to policing, if you can show me a white neighborhood that has the exact same measures on poverty rate, crime rate, unemployment rate, and is treated differently by the police— you're basically saying there is no such thing as racial discrimination in policing because, unfortunately, those things just vary systematically by race, and it's a hyper-segregated city. And so my whole point is to say I think what we need to do is start by describing what those differences are and then ask what would be discriminatory or non-discriminatory action given those systematic differences. So you talk about how these audit studies are wrong because of the way that they frame race by trying to isolate it and then change it. Are these used in policing cases? Do they pull from these studies? Is, is that a basis for case law or social sciences generally? Um, so I want to be super clear on something. I definitely never want to say that audit studies are wrong. What I want to say is that the that if we properly describe why they substantiate a claim of discrimination, then we understand that they're not the only way to show an instance of discrimination. Um, Because audit studies are incredibly important. They've been one of the most important vehicles that the anti-discrimination tradition has used um, from Eddie Murphy onwards uh, to show what discrimination is. Um, But I want to describe why they often are such a powerful instance of it. Um, Not to say they're wrong, and that if we properly describe the reason that they show an instance of discrimination, I think that's helpful. So audit studies, what they typically do is basically try to make auditors, which are two different people, um, you know, or or groups of people, that they're going to make them very similar on a whole set of things, and they're going to go into the real world and solicit outcomes, right? So they're going to apply for jobs, they're going to apply for apartments, they're going to negotiate over a, a used car price. And 
what they often do is try to make them very, very similar, right? So they try to say, we're going to have you speak in the same way. We're going to have you dress in the same way. We're going to have your hair done in the same way. And the reason that they often are such compelling evidence of discrimination, I think, is simply because it's sort of such a low bar, right? Which is people are see this and they say, given what the categories that we're talking about are, let's say it's race or sex or, um, you know, sexual orientation is being signaled in some way, we think that those two categories ought to solicit similar treatment, at least when they do the following, right? So someone might say, I have very different theories of what I think equality requires between, let's say, black and white, but I think at least if there's a Harvard professor that's black and a Harvard professor that's white and they apply for the same apartment, they should at least have equal odds of getting the same apartment, right? But I just want to, to note that that goes through the same logic, which is that it goes through a theory of what the groups are and that it goes through a theory of sort of what fairness is given what the groups are, A, and B, that they're often very, very minimal, right? So often what you're doing is creating this incredibly long list of similarities. But one thing that I say in the article, say, note, for example, if we wanted to get at the difference between treatment of race and gender, right? If you required black female auditors, female women, to straighten their hair, to make it look sort of Caucasian-y, what you're doing is encoding a norm about beauty that's norm to whiteness and to Caucasian hair in order to elicit the same, the same treatment. And if you allowed people to have any hair they wanted, right, and you notice differences. And then someone would say, well, it's not because of race. It's because the female auditors had natural hair. I mean, what you're basically saying is that by requiring them to have the same white hair, you're, you're, you're saying something about the categories. You're saying something about the conditions under which you expe- expect sameness. And let me give you even a more radical example. You know, let's say that you wanted to do an audit study of sex or gender discrimination, and you require men to wear gender normative clothes and women to wear gender normative clothes. And what if you didn't? What if you just allowed auditors come in and wear anything they wanted? And some men came in wearing dresses, and some women came in um, dressing, you know, genderqueer. And then you notice those differences. And someone would say, well, that's not because of sex. Um, that's because they're being gender nonconforming. Like, again, there's a running through your theories of the category. There's running through what you think is fair or just, given what the categories are. And if you think it's fair and just that employers decline employment to men who wear dresses or women who don't conform to feminine norms of dress, that's just another way of saying that I, that you know, to sh- of sort of saying what your theory of fairness is, given what the categories are. And so I think the reason that I insist on us thinking about audit studies the same way is because the logic of audit studies is actually the exact same with observational studies and this sort of fetishization, which I can't pronounce that word, of, you know, this this notion that audit studies are the gold standard because they're getting at causality, I think is wrong and it's deeply problematic in terms of being able to prove discrimination. So let's take a an example of affirmative action. And I'd love to know your thoughts on how your proposed model would change the landscape on that. That's really interesting. One project that I'm working on right now is thinking about the um, the Students for Fair Admission v. Harvard case. Um, and I've been poring over the expert reports. And this is, I mean, just in terms of proving my descriptive point that how people think about this is in causal terms, um, you know, pick up both of those reports, that plaintiff's report 
first page or second page, I mean, says something like, you know, if an Asian applicant were treated as a black, you know, um, were treated as if he were or she or she or they were black, um, they would have had a 95% of admission, right? I mean, so that's this this swapping, this causal language, this thinking that statistics can get at that after stripping everything away. Um, so just descriptively, it kind of proves my point. Um, and, but what I think is also interesting about what those numbers show is that there are systematic differences in the qualify the academic credentials that the different applicant pools divided by ascriptive race have. And that's the entire first half of the plaintiff's report show this. Um, and I think it's precisely because we think that there's historical reasons that are morally wrong that explain those systematic differences, um, at least with respect to Hispanic and black, that that we think that there's a good reason for valuing things at an academic institution other than just those measures. Um, but another thing that's just true is that the second you think that there's a reason to value something different, the distribution of people that will be admitted is going to be different than what it is if you just randomly sampled on, say, you know, the top decile of academic credentials. It's just it's just a fact of numbers <laughs> that once once you think that there's something to value other than just that, it's going to look different. And so if you are defining discrimination as dissimilar treatment of people that have identical things, you're going to run into this wall where you can't explain that. You can't – but I think if you take my approach, if you say, look, the first thing that we do is actually look at how groups vary systematically and then we ask – Given that as a matter of current social fact, there are these differences, what's fair and just? What are the reasons that we would have for valuing things and doing this differently in this arena? We can debate that. Now, people can disagree. You know, there's a lot of good faith disagreements about affirmative action or what you want to do. But I guess my point is that it's at least we could have those debates in an honest, clear fashion as opposed to under this weird subterfuge of, uh, your model has control for the right things. My model hasn't. I made the little stars of statistical significance go away. You have omitted variable bias. You have included variable bias, right? It's not a methodological problem. It's a political normative question about what's fair and just given the fact that things are distributed in this way. And in fact, that's what makes the categories salient in the first instance. So you've discussed with us um thick ethical concepts. You've mentioned it a few times. And in your in your article, um, an underlying part of that argument is this difference between thin and thick ethical concepts. Can you explain the difference? Yeah, I found this incredibly helpful um, after years of thinking about this. When I first started reading this um, philosophical tradition that made that distinction. Uh, so thin ethical concepts um, are sort of like thin things that we talked about, like freckles or bunions, in which they're sort of effectual judgments that could be um, transmitted and explained without much background knowledge, right? So again, we've got our Martian anthropologist comes down and, you know, I point to low-fat milk and I say, ugh, and I put thumbs down. I've clearly told this Martian that you don't want to drink skim milk because it's nasty, that you want to stay away from it. It's bad, right? I'm from Wisconsin, so I think all things have to have, like, very high fat in order to be good. Um and this is true, by the way. And and so it's it doesn't require a lot of sort of hanging out with us to, to get a sense of what I mean by it's by being bad. Um, but if I say, 
uh, to this Martian, he's sort of chauvinist or, um, um, well, that was a chivalristic thing to do or, um, you know, so-and-so was highly materialistic, right? These are words that both describe in some way the quality of an action and evaluate it at once. And in fact, the way in which it's evaluated require you to know something, to have some sort of background knowledge, right? to understand um, late capitalism and materialism and goods, right? to understand gender relations and the symbolism in gender relations, to understand things like chauvinism and chivalry, right? Um, so I can't just say, I can't just point to the, the person and say, because that doesn't give you enough information to understand the way that that is being evaluated. And my claim is that discrimination in the way that the law prescribes it is similar. What it's saying is that there's the way in which we're relying on or acting on the category is wrongful. It's, it's happening in a way that we want to disavow. In fact, I'm saying you can't even have a notion of discrimination unless you have some prior critique of the way that these categories are operating. You know, if we agree with the way that it's operating, right? If I just say, you know, to my my sister's niece, you know, don't lip off to your mother, that's disrespectful. I'm not being child discriminatory. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's an imperative as a as a six-year-old that you show your mother some respect and you're lipping off to her and that's not appropriate, right? But if she says you're child discriminating, what she's actually saying is you are you're using this category of child in a way that I am critiquing. <laughs> and I think that by enforcing me not being able to speak back to my mom, you're doing it in a way that I think is wrong, right? And I think that whenever we label something discriminatory, I don't know what's wh- what we could possibly mean other than that, that we're using the category, we're relying on the knowledge that you have about what the category is in order to describe it as wrongful. And that's, that's why I'm saying, like, all of this is... Every time we argue about what they should be the same on in order to compare people, you're arguing about that theory of fairness given what the category is. And because it's a thick term, that's that's all I can possibly understand what we're doing, um, partially because it, unless you have that concept, I don't know how you distinguish discrimination from something like irrationality or randomness, right? I mean, if I just hire freckled candidates – it's weird. It's probably a waste of money. <laughs> it might even be mean with respect to non-freckled people. But unless you have a theory about how freckledness is constituted as a category that needs to be um, disrupted or changed or is, that it could be morally wrongful in this thick way, you can't distinguish discrimination from just sort of idiosyncrasy or randomness. Great. Let's take this through one more example, because this is such high-level theoretical information, and talk about uh, what you talked about in the article of phony stash houses in Chicago and how that relates to what we've been talking about. Yeah, the, the, the phony stash house cases are something that I came across when I was um, working for a defense attorney in, in New York. It's a very common practice across the country. It's even worse at the federal level, which is basically... Um, you know, it's a form of the state-approved entrapment. Um, the law enforcement agency will go in as the, you know, the DEA or the FBI or the local police will go in usually with a confidential informant that they flipped from a prior case that's facing, you know, some ungodly 200-year sentence. So they coerce them into being a confidential informant. Um, sometimes they go from city to city doing this, and they'll go into an area and they'll say, um, 
you know, they'll make up an amount in a location. And this varies, but I mean, just so you have a sense of how it works. And they'll typically say, you know, there's a stash house and there's three keys of Coke and $10,000 in cash and we're going to rob it. Um, so bring your friends, bring guns so you can get the gun enhancement. Um, and then they, you know, so you bring your other friends and then they get a big group of people and they take one substantial step and then they charge them all with conspiracy, attempted criminal possession of controlled substance, whatever. And they charge them at these incredibly high levels. And often people who sort of enter the conspiracy very late in the game, right? So like, Uncle Joe Schmo just happens to be there that day. Um, he has a van, so he comes along and drives. So now he's in on the conspiracy, and they're all charged at this incredibly high level. And again, you see here that the culpability is driven by um, just these made-up amounts by the CI. So I have many reasons, as you can tell, that I think they're um, morally problematic. And they're also morally problematic, I think, because they often um, reinforce uh, racial disparities in our criminal justice system, which is one of the most problematic places um, to difficult to prove discrimination and um, and I think you know morally imperative that we address it there so um, one of the things that you'll constantly see in these cases in order to try to get discovery or prove um, either selective enforcement or selective prosecution there's this similarly situated test which has basically been operationalized as um, well I mean if you notice similarly situated, Similarly situated with respect to what? I mean, that's not in the test. It just says similarly situated, right? So so what you see is this war of the experts. And here in Chicago, there is this famous case that there's a number of them um, that went on for a very long time. And there was a war of experts. One of them was right here at the law school. Um, another one is at Columbia Law School. And they sort of went back and forth with their statistical reports, which is, you know, who has created the right group? And I mean, the first thing that I would point out is that it's just the right group question is the question of fairness, right? I mean, deciding who you think it's you should be comparing the group of defendants that the state did frame to to show that it was selective, that it was discriminatory, is the entire question of fairness. So one of the debates that you saw happen between the two experts was um, – this insistence that we're going to control for propensity to to be involved in um, a criminal enterprise, right? Which is, well, what does that mean? Well, often how that's operationalized is just prior convictions or prior arrests, which, of course, are deeply racialized from the start, right? Or maybe you're going to operationalize that by who's willing to participate. Well, if one of the things that constitutes race are and this is certainly true in Chicago, um, massive discrepancies between um, income and opportunities and neighborhood structure, of course you're going to see uh, differences there. And and so the entire question of what would be the relevant group to compare it to is, is framed in this methodological way of actually getting at the true treatment effect of race. And I think that's hiding the ball of the real question, of course, being that is it fair or not? And the other thing that you see is that the confidential informants, the race of the confidential informants largely defines the race of the group um, that is selected, right? And that's just, again, a social fact about race. So they're fighting about, um, this is getting a little technical, which is that if you've got, you know, 14 different groups, say that you, like crews that did the stash house, would your, would your probability of selecting that racial composition be determined by a random draw of 14? So if you drew the first person being black, all of their associates are going to be black, or to be decided by, say, there was, you know, 150 different individuals, right? And again, the, 
that's not a methods question. The question is, well, given that we know that people's social networks are largely racially homogenous, and this government knows that because when they get this confidential informant and that person sort of recruits the first participant, and then every other participant that they see coming in is of the same ascribed group, then the entire question of fairness is, well, do we think that we should put a burden on the government to have sort of a heightened scrutiny of who they're sort of framing for this, knowing that they're going to generate this racial composition? Or do we think that we're perfectly happy letting this play out in the way that it's going to play out if you don't? And, and those are fairness questions, but they can only be answered acknowledging these facts and not in this sort of abstract war of the experts type way. Great. Uh, any concluding thoughts or things that we didn't get to that you'd like to talk about? I think you guys did a, a great job asking questions, and I hope that it was clear. And if it wasn't, I mean, as clear as, you know, highly abstract philosophy and social science can be on a podcast. So the examples <laughs> definitely help. Great. So to wrap up, we have a quick question of what are five things from any category that you would highly recommend? Books, movies, restaurants, five things. Because I'm teaching this seminar in order to think through this even more carefully, um, this seminar called Social Ontology and the Law, just to be very obnoxious. Um, I think I would suggest to people who do quantitative work, and it's actually especially in the area of machine learning and algorithmic prediction, to think about constructivist writing, actually to read the philosophy of social construction and think very carefully about categories before um, you do things. And I would also then suggest um, reading some history books. Um, there's this great book that we just read called Whiteness of a Different Color, which is all about the making of whiteness from distinct white ethnicities um, in the 19th century. Um, so on that front, I guess I would suggest, you know, philosophy of social constructivism and social ontology and... Um, and history, right? Um, Condemnation of Blackness is another wonderful book by um, Gabriel Mohamed um, about the sort of making of blackness and 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 crime rates, and how you know white ethnic crime rates were written out of that. So this, those are some wonky suggestions. Um, Janelle Monet, Dirty Computer. Hold on, hold on. Oh, um, sorry to bother you. It should have won Best Picture. Um, great movie. So smart. Um, and Eddie Murphy, White Like Me. I think that's five. I'm going to say that's five. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about your new article. We are so excited. Thank you for taking a chance on me. I will say one more funny thing is that I've worked on this article 15 years and most people hated it and no one wanted it. Everyone makes me feel very angry because I think that, that so it, it was, it's a huge honor that you guys like ABBA took a chance on me. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Today's episode of Below the Line was edited by Olivia Vega, hosted by Daniel Burkowski and Amanda Wells. Special thanks to Professor Issa Kohler-Hausman, John Byron, Emily McCormick, Ken Zabler, Annie Prosnitz, and the outgoing NULR online team. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, or follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>